Hello and welcome to the latest Common Had a Dream podcast. I am here as ever with Ruth. Hello. Um, we have recorded this introduction officially a thousand times, so I'm hopeful that I'm going to get it right this time. We are going to be doing a summer special today where we're going to be talking about a variety of different things in the Welsh game. We're going to be talking about the WPL teams in Europe and how they've got on as well as the upcoming games for the Champions League qualifiers and the Europa League qualifier. Uh, we're going to talk about Swansea and their new manager. Uh, we're going to talk about Cardiff and their new signings plus uh, how Wrexham and Newport have got on in relation to their new signings and pre-season. Women's World Cup, uh, Jess uh, Fishlock tearing her ACL transfers for some of the Welsh men's players as well as a variety of different things. So let's start with Cardiff Met. They lost 1-0 out in Luxembourg to FC Progress, which I think is how you say it. Came back to Leckwith Stadium, uh, won the game 2-1 on the night and were very unfortunate, I thought, to go out on away goals. Yeah, it must be frustrating, understandably, to lose a tie like that. Um, But they also equally should be really proud of playing that way against a professional side um, I think the the patience they showed in that game was very mature actually um, and the, the the Luxembourg team seemed a bit seemed a bit rattled actually from what I was listening to absolutely there seemed to be a lot of tension between two teams I think at, at half time it seemed like there was I wouldn't say a scuffle but a bit of handbags for want of a better better expression um, I thought they were a bit lucky with the penalty um, I'm not entirely sure it was a pen but you take them all um, but it was very well dispatched and overall I thought like you say I thought they were quite I don't know I just don't, I don't like the away goals rule no. as a general rule I'm not because both teams have to play away I feel like it always favours the team who are away in the second leg because they know exactly the situation they're in which is not the same for the for the home team and given both teams play away really sure what the point is. I feel a blog coming on. Yeah, that's I might do some number crunching on this. Excellent <laughs> stuff. Um, yeah, so they were they were a bit unlucky, I thought. But, you know, for a team against, playing against players who are Luxembourg internationals and have got a lot of experience, um, a lot of people expected Cardiff Met to, to, to go out um, in that one. And whilst they did, I think the, the manner in which they played and performed certainly... Um, confused a few people's expectations I thought no I think well done overall in absolutely honesty. absolutely yeah. and I'm sure that they'll be back for another crack at European football uh in the coming in the coming years um Barry was a bit of a strange one they drew nil nil against Cliftonville of Northern Ireland at home uh at Leckwith well I say at home sort of at home um and then went away and just seemed to not really turn up defensively just seemed a bit disorganized from what I saw yeah, I think there's a, a level of experience that Cliftonville have in terms of how to manage a, a two-headed tie and, you know, keep themselves going for 180 minutes. And I think Barry's inexperience showed there, really, didn't it? I agree. And I think I think they they probably would like a few chances back that they, they wasted at Lackwith, um, as well as one or two on the night, really. But overall, I think, yeah, the like you say, the lack of experience away from home really told um and a few a few errors bit of poor defending is obviously had had a had a, had, a, had a negative effect um, as they've ended up going out of that one four nil um but, after what seemed like a good result at home yeah but some nice comments about you know the sort of privilege of being disappointed you know to be able to play in those games yeah. is a privilege and uh, when you look where they've come from and to and I like the fact that there was some kind of um, 
like rational thought about the road that they've been on yeah. and the fact that you ha- you have to earn these disappointments in in a some, no, you know in, in that way you have to get yourself to a point where you're you're at the table for these events and then the next the next step is is to gain the experience that Cliff, clearly Cliftonville have yeah. from playing in these things virtually every season no that's true that's true and i think from what i heard the the, the fans that went out to barry uh, and the same if i'm not sure how many went to luxembourg to be perfectly honest but i saw a few great videos of the barry fans having a great time regardless of the score and i think they well received and again i saw lots of things on twitter the cliftonville fans saying positive things um about the barry fans which i thought is is always a bonus um Connor's Key are going to play Kilmarnock on Thursday the 11th in Europa League qualifier and TNS are going to play <clears throat> Ferron Ikeli, I think, from Kosovo on Tuesday the 9th in the Champions League qualifiers. Um, you'd have to say that the, the Kilmarnock game, I know that Connor's Key did very well in the uh, in the Iron Brew Cup last year, but you'd imagine that playing a team like Kilmarnock might be a a bit of a stretch for them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard. The, the argument about summer leagues and timing, at least you're playing a team with a, sim- a similar sort of ramping up stage of their season as well. Um, but you feel there has to be a difference in class, unfortunately. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I don't really know much about Ferroni Kelly, um, but I think that I've noticed, as a lot of people have, that Kosovo are obviously up and coming in terms of their national team. Um, so obviously the standard of football there, be it domestically or internationally, is obviously of a, of a decent level for those players. So you'd think that that'll be quite a close tie. I'd like to think, based on almost nothing, that TNS will get through that. It's difficult to know, isn't it? Yeah. I won't pretend I know anything about yeah. Kosovan domestic football. No. Um, but equally, TNS know how to battle when their backs are against the wall. They know how to handle things. You think about how they finished off the season yeah. at a point where it looked... At one point, it looked like a close contest and they just controlled Street it ultimately. Yeah. Um, so on that basis, you feel that they must be in a good position. But again, don't know the first thing about the opposition. Yeah, I mean, I did a bit of digging and and, and stuff on Ferroni Kelly, but because I don't really know the context of the opposition they're playing against and, and whatnot, it's very difficult to kind of tell what value their results hold, if you know what I mean. But I would agree with you in the sense that TNS, like you said about Barry not having the experience that Cliftonville did, you'd say that perhaps TNS will have that experience of playing these sort of games. So fingers crossed for both of those teams uh, that they can kind of continue to progress. Um, I think it has shown that the Welsh National League has, the Welsh Premier League, sorry, has come on a lot mm-hmm. in terms of its in terms of its quality um, and what it's able to offer. Just to go on that slight sidetrack, you mentioned um, in the build-up you wanted to talk about uh, Adam Rossgrove going to Wimbledon. Yeah, I just think it's a really interesting development. I mean, it must have been a hard decision for him um, to miss these European games with Cardiff Met. I can perfectly understand his yeah. his decision and the timing. Um, and you're going to jump at a League One team offering you a contract, yeah, a professional obviously. Contract, yeah. Um, but I thought it was an, it's an interesting statement about where the where the WPL is and the role it might have to play for for some of our. Um, local players who yeah. perhaps 
take exactly his route and are, are on books with, you know, he's on Swansea's books for a while. He had lots of trials with other teams and nothing really came of it. Yeah. Um, played with Slantwit for a, a bit and then, and then obviously went to college. Um, and I think it, if it works, I think it's an it's a really interesting route that the WPL may be able yeah. to play as a as a kind of second option. Um, he played very well in the C internationals. That might well yeah, have been that's true, actually, that yeah. might well have been where perhaps he was noticed yeah. by their scouts. Um, but his scoring record for for Met is really impressive. It's all but a goal every other game. All oh, right. Um, so you know, really hope it. Obviously, really hope it works out for him. But actually, as a striker, you know, then if it really works out for him, that might be a, a stepping stone for some of our other players too. No, absolutely. And I think that's the big thing I took from it really is is that it just goes to show that people are looking at the WPL in terms of players and who they can pick up. Um, and his route, as you said there, is kind of a path not particularly well trodden, but it's it's kind of worked for him. And it's, again, like we keep saying, shows the value of the WPL and the... Uh, and the way that it's improved, but also the the benefit that it is providing players and possibly even coaches as well mm-hmm. in the future. So I think it shows as well that there's a big opportunity for people to move on to the professional game. Even if they've maybe dropped back a step, they can still push on a step as well. So, yeah, I think it's a great move for him. And in the very unlikely event that you are listening, good luck <laughs> with your move. Um, To move on to... Swansea City they have obviously appointed Steve Cooper as their manager uh, who was previously in the England setup um, has won the under 17s I think it was World Cup Um, personally I thought it was a and it is a very very good signing a slight gamble obviously but still a very very good signing for Swansea yeah I think it's a bold brave kind of Swansea-esque move and I like that about it alone um I think the experience he has with the under-17 shows he's a good youth coach, which is what Swansea are going to have to lean on. Um, He's been part of the Liverpool Academy too. So, you know, he's used to dealing with quality players. Um, The style of football that he had the under-17s of England playing, you know, you can can see that mirrored with the Swansea way. Um, His experience level is incredible. I think overall... I mean, obviously, it's a fingers crossed. You don't know what's around the corner, but you yeah, could appo- you could appoint someone experienced and still, you know, have all those questions. Yeah. And I would rather that they took some brave decisions rather than some safe decisions because I think um, they're at a team now at a turning point, and they they need to de- they need to decide what and who they're going to be. And I think the fact these last two appointments at least show that they're prepared to like I say, make those brave decisions that they have over over the last 30 years, in fairness. Yeah. Um, and I think it's good to see that trend around all the other problems. You know, there's a whole lot of financial stuff that we, we won't go into, but at least this side of things, you feel like they're starting to ensure they make the right decisions. No, I totally agree. Um, I think when we were talking about this previously, we were talking about making sure they didn't go down a predictable route. Mm-hmm. Uh, and signed and picked up the right person. When you think about the way that that England team, the youth team, played football, it obviously ticks a lot of boxes. He'll have to coach and work with young players. That's going to be the basis of their team. So again, from that perspective, it's good. I mean, obviously, the the lack of kind of first like senior football really is the 
is the big question. And I wonder how he'll kind of balance things. I, I read today that Jordan Ayew is going to Palace for two and a half million, um, which obviously the money, that, like the fee that they're gaining is neither you nor there really. It's more the, the wages. Um, but those sort of players coming back who might not necessarily want to be there and whether they hang on to them, people like Boney. And uh, again, I, I'm sure, or you'd hope for Swansea's financial sake, he'll go. Um, but I wonder how he will handle that situation and uh, things like signings and whether, you know, with the limited budget he's got, we don't know how good he is at spotting a player just rather than just coaching what he's got. So it is, a it, you know, from that perspective, it is absolutely a gamble. But I think from, from the options that were being mentioned, it's definitely the right one. Um, obviously still retaining the aspect of the fact that it is it is a gamble. Um, Swansea played their first pre-season game yesterday. Uh, they beat Mansfield 2-1. They have, though, been slow kind of in the transfer market. The only thing I can see is Jake Bidwell, a left-back, who they have got on a free transfer from QPR is the only player that's come in. Um, whilst they've still got a selection of players who have kind of returned from loan. Ayo looks like he's going to go, but Boney, Baston, Montero and Andre Ayo have come back from their loans. So it'll be really interesting to see if they can get rid of those players off the wage bill and and finally start to make progress in a financial sense as well as in a, in a Yeah, it's the, it's the wage bill there, isn't it? I mean, if if I suppose if they go out on loan, it's it's progress, but... Uh, Really, they they need them off the books fully. I mean, they've still got, they still have got rid of um, Narsing, has gone to Feyenoord on a free. Obviously, unfortunately, Dan James has gone to Man United. So you'd like to think that that seventeen million or so that they got for him will really. And I'm sure there's add-ons that mm-hmm. that'll grow as well. So you'd like to think that'd help. But they've released Olsen and Fur. So again, probably on a. Oh, looking at this, actually, I've lied. Boney has been released. Sorry, that's my mistake um, in comparison to the other ones. But still, you'd like to think that they could finally clear that off the wage bill and use the Dan James money to to good effect and hopefully have a good run at the at the league this year. Um, not to win it, probably, but to at least get in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure, I imagine that's what they're looking for. Yeah, and you'd hope so. Although, like I say, it is a bit of a you know a bit of a gamble for with Cooper and everything. Who is not a handsome man. <laughs> Every time I've seen a picture of him, he always looks slightly confused by everything that's going on around him. I don't know why that's relevant. Um, but I thought I would, uh, I'd mention it nevertheless. Um, speaking of teams who have got uh, new players in, um, Cardiff have done some, some good business already, by the looks of it. Yeah, I think the Vokes move is the, the one that stands out. I mean, for, yeah. for obvious sort of connection reasons. Um, but I think his his sort of dogged determination and stability and just all-round decent guy yeah. um, is exactly what they're looking for in the, in the middle of that midfield. I think it's a re- really positive addition for them. That's the one that stands out for me. Oh, I agree. And especially with uh, Gunnison leaving, that kind of plugs that hole straight away with someone who's you know, as much as Gunnison has done a lot good for Cardiff City, Volks is still kind of probably a more athletic player, can get around a bit more, is younger, um, has the bonus of have the throw in as well, which Gunnison had, but he's five years younger than Gunnison, he's 25. Obviously, his, his career seems like it's on the up in the sense that he's playing for Wales, and, and in, in that respect, 
you'd have to say him going to Cardiff, staying in the championship is a good move for, for Wales as well. Oh yeah, undoubtedly. I think that's important. Um, they've also signed Curtis Nelson from Oxford on a free and Joe Day, the Newport goalkeeper. I thought that was a bit of an interesting one. I totally get why Joe Day has gone, but he is definitely going to be at best the second choice keeper there. Um, they bought someone else before they went up, whose now name escapes me, but uh, before they went up to the Premier League last year, who's probably going to be the second choice. So Joe Day in likelihood might even be the third choice keeper there. So I was a bit surprised, mm-hmm. but equally it's a bit, you know, I can understand why it's hard to turn down a yeah. a championship club. Yeah, I mean, and it's, and the geography is easy for him as well. I mean, there was that was very, personally, I imagine that was an easy decision. Yeah. Um, but equally, would you want to be sitting on the bench? I, I, you know, yeah. it's hard, isn't it? Because you want to, you, you don't want to miss professional opportunities. Either. No, he's got a young family. He's obviously not long had a had a baby. He's gone on a free at the end of his contract, so the, he'll probably get a decent signing on fee, which will go all to him. Plus, obviously, I'd imagine he's on better wages at, at Cardiff than he is that uh, at Newport. So I get from that sense, you know, there's a bigger mm-hmm. picture to all why he's got to go. Um, I wonder how much he'll he'll kind of play. Probably not much, I'd guess. But again, I totally get why uh, why he's gone. I think it's a bit of a shame for Newport. Mm-hmm. I think if he'd gone somewhere, he was going to he was playing every week. I think it, it makes it a bit more rational. But from a Newport perspective, I'd imagine they're probably disappointed that he's going to go to Cardiff to probably sit on their bench for a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah, it's, but equally, he was at the end of his contract. They hadn't got it sorted out. True. So, you know, maybe they maybe they could see that he was ready for some sort of step up yeah. and was looking for the money that would go with that. Yeah. And, and to be fair, he's had a very good season, Joe Day, yeah. um, and obviously starred in that uh, FA Cup run, played very, very well against Manchester City and against Leicester as well. So you'd, you'd think, you know, I, I can understand where that is all that has all come from. But overall, it seems like quite a positive summer so far for Cardiff. You'd still say the big thing is they need to spend money on a on a centre-forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, they were never going to buy any ass from Everton. Obviously, he's gone back now. But they do need to kind of plug that gap, really, because you can't imagine that uh, Callum... What's his name? I don't know. Yeah, you do. The big <laughs> lad who played up front who used to be a right back. Patterson. There we go. Sorry if you're listening, Cal. Um You'd imagine that they can't really just rely on him uh, in the Premier League. They need someone else up there. Right, who do you is, want to do that whole bit again? Because they're in the Championship. And what did I say? Premiership. <laughs> You'd imagine they're going to need someone. <laughs> Can you write down somewhere in like, uh, <coughs> like 18 minutes 30? You'd imagine that they're going to need someone to, to kind of plug the gaps with, with Callum Patterson. He, he can't kind of lead the line and they need someone who's going to be a proven goal scorer in the championship. And and I think that has still got to be a, a top priority for them. I know they've got strikers, but I think... I think they need someone who's going to go and get the goals to get them up. Yeah, I think they need someone that can mix it up a bit more, don't they? Yeah. Um, difficult to find. I think everybody's looking for them. Yeah, exactly. And it's difficult to get people... You know, A lot of people are going through the young players on loan sort of route um, from Premier League clubs, 
which I think is getting harder and harder now because the money that everyone's you know, you know in and involved. But you'd imagine Cardiff are going to get a solid amount of money of parachute payments, so you'd think that there's some sort of window there at least for them to to do something about it. So I, I hope they can get that sorted. But for me, that's got to be their main priority moving forward. No, I agree. Because actually, the squad overall they're in a they're in a good place. They were careful going up. They didn't overspend. They haven't got silly contracts that are falling back into the championship yeah true so hopefully they've got a little money as you say aside that they can they can look at filling that striker gap i mean equally maybe they'll look at it at ward uh and reed and think at a championship level they could they could be effective enough i mean they might give them the autumn and look at what they can get in the january window yeah maybe maybe it'll be interesting to see but i put like i say personally i still think that's something that they need to they need to do something about. Cardiff do have uh, some pre-season games coming up. They're going on a little American tour. They're going to San Antonio and New Mexico United uh, in a week or so's time on uh, a week tomorrow. A week yesterday, in fact, on Saturday the 13th. Uh, they're playing San Antonio and then Thursday the 18th they're playing New Mexico United um, before playing Valladolid and Nice. Is Nice where Vieira is? Don't know. Yes, no, no. I think it is. So then Nice or Lille. Patrick Vieira may or may not be at the Cardiff City Stadium on the 27th of July, the day before my birthday. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, to, to move on to Newport, they have been very, very busy this summer in terms of renewing contracts. Um a couple of new signings, but also uh, set up some interesting friendlies. They have Undy Athletic, Shrewsbury, Bath and Western Supermare uh, before Mansfield, which is their first game of the of the league season. Um, their new signings have been quite interesting, actually, because they have also tied up a lot of contracts. Joss Ladderby was the latest one this week, which I thought was a great signing for them. Dolan has signed a new contract um, as, amongst uh, amongst others. But if you look at what they've got in, they have got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven players in uh, already this year. All of them on free transfers, which I think is great. Uh, sorry, six players. One is promoted from the from the youth squad, but. Kyle Hawkins from West Brom, Corey Whiteley or Whitley from Ebbsfleet, Tom King from Millwall, Marvel, the names get more difficult to say, Ekpitata, Pitia from Hungerford, Daniel Ledbetter from Bristol Rovers, and Lazar Stojavialovic from Millwall. I'm confident that's exactly how he says his name. Right, well, that aside. That aside. I mean, I think it says something of how players regard Flynn and the Newport setup that people are clearly jumping at an opportunity to join them. Yeah. Early, you know, as soon as Newport is an option, people seem to be saying yes. Very true. Um, and I think that, again, speaks to where they are on their development curve. And they're at a point now where they have they have to be serious contenders for promotion next year, hopefully. Yeah, I agree Just with you. Just to keep this... this momentum going and keep a lot of those squad together I'd imagine I mean the Dan Butler we talked about before I think is a loss um going to Peterborough um and obviously Joe Day leaving is is a loss as well they've lost Andrew Crofts um who's gone down a step to Yeovil um 
he's not really featured much, especially yeah. the second half of the year with injuries and whatever else. So hopefully that'll be a fresh start for him. But um, yeah, I think they've managed to keep the majority of the squad together. I think that's the important thing. Yeah. Isn't it? And it's hard at that level. Yeah. You look at the turnover. Like you look at Wrexham as an example. I mean, I know it's one league less, but the level of turnover is incredible. Oh, yeah. There's so many people moving about. And, I, and as you say, it just goes to show the the importance of the momentum, I guess, in, in kind of keeping everyone together. Um, so fingers crossed for Newport. I agree with you. I think they should be kind of contenders for doing well in that division next year. Um, the last two years, they've seemed to have like a dip in the middle of the year. And I think that will obviously be a big priority for Flinney and Newport is to to avoid something like that happening again and um, making sure they kind of take advantage of the position they get themselves in. Yeah, I mean, they were so unlucky this year. I mean, hopefully that isn't a kind of a sore that's that's burning and yeah. they can, they can uh, take it more as an, an inspiration and a strength uh, and go forward from there. No, I absolutely agree. I think what Newport may end up doing is looking back on this summer and one of the key aspects is the fact that they haven't lost Flynn and they can keep building in and around and through him. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, I think that might actually be the biggest sort of non-signing for them yeah. for this for this summer season. No, I agree with you. And I think, I, I mean, I'm, I obviously don't know, but I'd imagine a big thing for him was the improvement of training facilities and stuff like that, which has obviously been done. And when pre-season has now started, they're back in those upgraded facilities. So I'd imagine that was a big thing for him. And that was probably a big reason why he stayed, is that they used the FA Cup money uh, and the playoff money, which I'd imagine they got a solid chunk of, um, to continue him to allow themselves to push on. I think if everything had stayed the same, then I'm not sure it would have been... The, the same necessary but again it just shows what strides Newport are making and how well they're doing things I, I mean I say the same thing pretty much every time we talk about them but I've been so impressed with how they've they've been organized and run and put everything together and big improvements around the club and around the ground and at the training facilities it's a really good example of how well run you can you know what you can achieve and still run a football club within its means yeah absolutely um Wrexham Played a couple of preseason games. They beat uh, Kevin Druids 4-0. Lots of trialists played in mm-hmm. both games, I've noticed, um, including a couple of goalkeepers. Uh, but then they played Joey Barton's Fleetwood and lost 1-0 on Friday. They, too, have had kind of a big turnover in in players. JJ Hooper, who used to play for Newcastle United, um, Devonte Redmond, Leighton McIntosh and Adam Barton are players who have all come into the club alongside a loan from Cardiff City. But he is a striker. Mark Harris, there you go, sorry, Wales under-21 international. So I think they've they've moved very quickly and very effectively uh, considering they've also had kind of a few players leave for different clubs and uh, for different reasons and released a couple of people as well, like Kenny Augustine. Uh, Kemi? Is he Kemi or Kenny? Kemi, that bloke, he's gone. Um, so I think that shows, again, that they are very switched on. They know exactly what, what they've got to do. And again, I think br- bringing in the Mark Harris from Cardiff City, Wales under-21 international, is a, is a good move then because we all know that strikers were there kind of Achilles heel last year. I noticed that Fondop was back in the squad, so I'm not sure whether he'll, he'll be given... Um, 
another crack of the whip this year. But again, that's definitely where they need to. Yeah, obviously, over the last two years, it's clear where their need has been. And it's encouraging to see that they're doing something about it. Um, I think it's another example of a team that is interesting for players at that level. Uh, The fact that, you know, business is being done, relatively speaking, early. And it looks like it's good business. Um, I think think Mark Harris in particular is a really interesting addition. Um, He's on a good developmental curve you know you look at how he's been playing for the 90s and the 21s um it's interesting that cardiff are willing to loan him out given their particular situation as well you know my fear would be that he plays well for wrexham and then cardiff grab him back in january yeah Yeah, maybe um but equally if he's playing well that's that's good for both teams yeah uh so i'd be really interested to see how how his um developmental curve continues up at the race course no absolutely and, and i think jj hooper is someone who is a positive sign in he was released uh, well uh, i saw i'm not sure released but they've got him from grimsby anyway he's kind of a tall uh quite a strong fast lad he's got very good feet he won i think the war jackie award which is like given to the most promising youngster in newcastle uh, at newcastle united uh, many uh, well i say many years ago a solid amount of years ago he's 25 now but um he was at one point sort of one of the big hopes to come through the academy um scored a lot of goals at youth level but never ever seemed to get run be it for newcastle or any of the teams who's then subsequently loaned to um so and I, I you know looking at his stats that seems to be the case a little bit with with grimsby as well so hopefully he can kind of get a sustained spell in the side and that will really help him because he has definitely got ability mm-hmm. um Hopefully, this is the chance he has to to kind of show it. And I think getting uh, Devonte Redmond central midfield uh, from Salford is a is a big is a big sign in for them uh, as well. And hopefully, he'll you know young lad as well can come into the to the team and to the squad and make a big big difference. So we talked before about like a big turnover, and there has definitely been a, a solid amount of turnover, but certainly nowhere near of the huge numbers that we were worried about. And interestingly, the trialists they've got in. They seem to be kind of keen on one of them. The goalkeeper, I'm not even going to try and say his second name, um, but he was a Polish keeper, I think, and that was someone they're really considering as kind of a backup keeper. So mm-hmm. they're maximising a lot of different avenues. And uh, yeah, I, you know, as we said before, I hope that the goal scoring problem has been addressed and they can push on. Yeah, I, mean, I think, there's, you know, as a summary across those four teams that we've been discussing, the kind of astute business and well-managed and well-organized business that each of them are doing that's actually the theme i see in how the four the four teams are approaching the summer that they're all being careful and mindful but equally addressing their needs um not going after silly contracts uh securing in them in the most securing the players they want to yeah um some stability with manager or in swansea's case an interesting new manager um yeah, all in all, I think it's been a really positive last six weeks or so for all four yeah. of those teams. I agree. And I think the money they've spent has been sensible as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, just go back to Cardiff for a sec there. I think vaults cost them somewhere in the region of two and a half million. That's in the way that people got. So Ty, Tyrone Mings is going to Aston Villa for like, something like 22 million today. I mean, he's bloody useless. So to get someone like, well, I'm not suggesting they're of the same quality, but to get someone like Volks in for two and a half million or so, I think it's an absolute bargain. Um so yeah, I think all all four clubs can be happy with the business they've done so far. 
uh, and fingers crossed that when the season starts, they'll be firing on all cylinders. I'm very much looking forward to the South Wales derby this year. Um, that that one's back on the table. I think it'll be very exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Always an entertaining day. Um, for a lot of these people, obviously, the season is just starting. For a lot of the women, the season is just finishing. Uh, today was the day of the Women's World Cup final. The USA beat the Netherlands 2-0. How much of the uh, of the football have you watched? I confess not as much as a as I would like, yeah. given we've been moving house. Um, You've got a very good excuse, to be fair. <laughs> um, but I think, overall, I think the level of interest and the discussion and the, the quality of the football and the statement that the women have made over there in France has just been so impressive. The right team won. Yeah. Um, which... You know, whatever you might think about a tournament, ultimately you want the right team to win. Uh, and I think the, uh, I, th- I think it's been a really key tournament actually in terms of the development of the women's game. Um, I know we've, we're on to World Cup number eight now, uh, but I think this one seems to have had a level of press interest, a level of perhaps more public interest. Yeah. You know, there's been a big viewing party here in. Boston, uh, I don't remember that happening before, even when the US have, have been in finals before. Right. Um, the the key thing, like I said, I think the key thing is that people are actually taking this whole process and tournament a little more seriously and appropriately than they might have done historically and appreciating what's on offer on the pitch. I agree. I think the quality of football has been great. There's yeah. The average goals a game is something like 2.8, which I think is great in terms of drawing people in. You know, you talk about watch party. I saw today that there were about 10,000 people turned up in Kansas uh, to a watch party to watch a game, which is brilliant. I saw they were showing uh, one of the England games at Glastonbury and had a big screen up for that, which again is huge progress. Um, I saw Tash Harding tweeted today and uh, a few others as well. You know, it's great that the impact that this has had, but now go and support Mm -hmm. those people uh, at their clubs and kind of keep your interest going. It just doesn't, because it's not on the telly anymore, it doesn't mean it's kind of died, Um, which I think is a very, very good point. But I think in terms of what has been achieved through this World Cup, it's massive. I, I do think there's the same collection of idiots who, who talk about women's football in a different way they talk about men's football. And I saw someone today from a journalist, Miguel Delaney, um, who was talking about, you know, the obnoxiousness, if that's a word, of the American supporters and, you know, how the US can come across as arrogant when they're dominating something. It's just like, if, like you said, this is the, you say it's the eighth World Cup. So 1991 was the first one. USA's worst finishing position at a World Cup in everything has been third. I don't think they are particularly obnoxious American sports fans. I think there's a bit of a, a bad cliche. There are definitely, you know, some idiots around there, but, you know, it's not as if England fans are exceptional. And I can imagine that I was probably fairly unbearable in the summer of 2016. I was just spending a lot of time talking to people who were enjoying it too. So I thought it was ridiculous. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that for some reason, rather than hailing 
America for what they have done in producing and continuing to produce top quality athletes since 1991 on the world stage there are still people chipping away at them and if um you know but when barcelona were winning everything with messi and xavi and iniesta everyone was just saying oh my god they're the best team ever no one was calling their fans this that and the other and they're obnoxious and you know i, I just find it a bizarre thing piers morgan telling calling mega rapino cocky for celebrating with her arms out and people having a tantrum when Alex Morgan did the sipping the tea celebration like oh my god like men take their shirts off and show off how ripped they are after each goal they score like are we calling them obnoxious and cocky as well like, it, there's some stuff like that that's been bizarre but mm-hmm. I, I do there's definitely been huge progress made the football's been great and it has been a great tournament to watch so touch on the impact of VAR I think it's an interesting one I my concern seems to be that perhaps particularly in the group stages but it all seemed a little bit experimental in terms of the approach to the laws and the interpretation and and putting referees in situations where it might have been for some of them it might have been their first experience of dealing with VAR on such a stage I do think there should be questions of FIFA in terms of just how that was managed. Um, I don't think it helped um, the early games when they were so stop-start and so haphazard at times with some of those VAR decisions. I mean, you and I have talked about this many, many times. (laughs) I feel like you're waving a red rag to me at the moment. Um, and I knew this might come up, so I have done a bit of digging, and it's not giving me the results I was hoping for, which is frustrating. But I think that the level of refereeing in the group stages generally was quite average, but I don't think that's because those aren't very good officials. I think it's because there was kind of a sense of uncertainty about a lot of things that was going on. I think it's absolutely scandalous and this would never ever happen in men's football and a perfect example of it um, I'll come on to in a sec about the Champions League final on the on June the 1st all of these rule changes came in about you know where your feet have to be on the line for penalties and more explicit and the handball stuff and the kicking the ball fully out of the area or goal kicks and a whole plethora of things why on earth did FIFA choose to bring all those rules in effectively half well not halfway through a season but basically you've got all these people mm-hmm. top level athletes who have been playing with one set of rules they go to the biggest tournament in the world the biggest tournament of their lives and someone has changed all the rules and that's stupid they wouldn't do it for the men's game and they didn't because the champions league finals on the 1st of june when all of these new rule changes came in so they put all the rule changes in apart from the Champions League final. So if you wouldn't do it for a men's game, why are you doing it for, for the biggest tournament in women's football? It's ridiculous. And I think you could, you could see that. I think people were using VAR too much when they didn't mm-hmm. need it. I think there were a collection of poor decisions used because they felt, the referees felt that they had to use mm-hmm. VAR. I was going to hopefully prove a point that there would be more penalties ever than ever before. And at the last Women's World Cup in 2015 in Canada, there were 
22 penalties. And in this one, it was... I, I can't get the final numbers because I didn't have time to go through everything, but it was somewhere in the region of 26, 27, 28. Which is actually not that no. much more. Statistically, that's not. So I, I suppose it hasn't had that big an impact because in the Men's World Cup, for example, 2014 to 2018, there were almost double the amount of penalties given. I just felt that and feel that there were lots and lots of incidences where referees have given decisions because of VAR. They've kind of used it to justify their decision rather than help them make the correct mm-hmm. one, if that makes sense. And I've got a bit of slack off uh, on, on Twitter about it today, but like I didn't, I thought the USA to get the penalty today. And I know that the Dutch player's foot was high. Um, if you haven't seen it, the US got a pen. One of the Dutch players kind of came in from the side, tried to clear the ball away with a foot, did miss the ball, but had a high foot in trying to clear the ball away. And it kind of, she definitely didn't kick Alex Morgan. She kind of sort of like grazed Alex Morgan's arm with her foot, basically, and then kind of bumped into her in her follow through. And it was given as a pen. And I guess by the letter of the law, she had a high foot. No, she grazed her arm with her high foot. You know, the, the bundling into her is, you know, neither you nor there. I felt like every time there's been contact in VAR, the refs have gone penalty. And I just think that just because there's contact, it doesn't mean it's a foul. You can go shoulder to shoulder with someone and that's not a foul. So just because there's contact, I don't know. And I felt there were a lot of games where, and it was interesting that things changed as the groups went on, for example, uh, after the group, sorry. For example, the, the instances of retaken penalties and that sort of thing, got less and I'm not sure if that was people got used to it a bit more and were adhering to the rules a bit better um, there was even talk about changing the rules kind of mid mid tournament uh, and uh, they are going to kind of relax the rules on, on the goalkeepers and where they stand on the line and all that I don't know for me I personally don't think it got to m- many more correct decisions so as a consequence I just, I just don't see the what the value, what is it, what value is it adding to the game? My concern with VAR is that it effectively the fifty-fifty decisions that happen in front of you on the pitch as a fifty-fifty decision. Half of them you're going to go one way, half of them the other. As soon as you watch it again on VAR, I think there's a tendency to go with the team that are, in inverted commas, committing the foul and giving a free kick or a penalty or whatever, you know, whatever the circumstances might be. I think the difficulty then is it puts the defending team very much on the back foot as to what they can do. And I, I think that's a backwards step overall in terms of what 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 we enjoy in a game as regards the group stage i think that the shenanigans with as you say the timing of those rule changes the nature of the rule changes because they were all just so kind of pedantic little hairline things that then became a controversy because you were looking at those hairline decisions on VAR. And they also weren't being um, implemented fairly. I, I 
wish I'd remember now, but there was the around the Scotland game. There was obviously the thing where the um, Scottish keeper saved the penalty from mm-hmm. the Argentinian player. It was then retaken because her foot was not deemed to be fully over the line. Despite the fact, in the same moment, there were three, I think, two or three Argentine players who encroached. Yes. So, by the same token, uh, well, sorry, when she scored the, mm-hmm. the the retaken pen. All right, it wasn't by much, but yeah. they encroached. Yeah. And equally, I th- oh god, I think it was the France game. I think. Um. They scored a retaken penalty, and for the same, the, re, the pen was taken for the retaken for the same reason. And again, there were three or four, maybe even five French players who encroached on the retake. But there was no the goal was allowed to stand. Yeah. And I cannot abide the inconsistency of it. If you want to be pedantic, and I agree, like you said, pedantic was the word you used, I think. The reason those hairline decisions have been made and changed about the rules is so that you can make things mm. black and white, so that VAR has a purpose. Yeah, so make everything black and white. Exactly. Yeah. Or, and if you're going to do that, great. I think it's wrong. <laughs> I totally, fundamentally disagree. But if you're going to do that, and you're using VAR for stuff that is that small, that's fine. You do it for everything. Everything that you say you're going to use mm-hmm. VR for, you do it for. And it would be shit and it would ruin football, but you cannot have it both ways. And, and that's what I couldn't abide was the fact that people would make a decision and then it wouldn't be fair for the other team. And I hated that. And it ruined a lot of games as spectacle. And again, that Scotland game is a perfect example. At the end of that match, people are talking about all oh, the controversy in the VAR and should the rules have changed and blah, blah, blah. That was a brilliant game of football. Yeah. Scotland were absolutely robbed, a lot of it by their own doing, <laughs> but they were robbed, I felt, of a, of a route out of that group. Mm-hmm. And all anyone was talking about at the end was, is VAR good? Yeah. They were brilliant in that game. No one talked really that much about their performance and the fact that they kind of crumbled as well in the last 15 minutes. It's a brilliant game of football. But yet, the first thing we're talking about after the match is VAR. I just, and I, I can't, I cannot abide it. Yeah. That was my frustration, I think, overall with the tournament. Where we've ended up now is a, is a great place with some great football and hopefully that's what people take forward. I think the frustration in the early games was you were actually having trouble finding the football in the other stuff. Yeah. Whether it was the rule changes, the inconsistent application of those rule changes. I mean, regardless of VAR, there was some timing issues in that Scotland-Argentinian oh game, which were just that. ridiculous. That, that you know That was just wrong, fundamentally. Um, and I think, going back to your point about the timing of those rule changes with FIFA, that is another indication that FIFA just still still need to get their act together when it comes to the women's game. Absolutely. As you said, for them to understand, we're doing this on June 1st, but we're not going to implement it for the Champions League final, yet we're expecting people to turn up in France and play to these new rules in their primary competition. It's a, it's a ludicrous situation to put anyone in, and it's particularly ludicrous to put your referees in that position um, when you're having trouble getting good good referees to come through the game and I think a lot of the issues that those referees had in those early games were nothing to do with their quality as referees it was what was thrown at them no I I totally agree um I've talked to people about you know the the timing thing 
you've either got to have a system or so where you have, like you have with substitutions when it comes to extra time, it's 30 seconds. So you've got 30 seconds or 60 seconds to make a decision. And if you can't make it, you can't make a, a changed decision in those 30 or 60 seconds, then we crack on. Or you, when it goes to VAR, you stop the clock completely and only restart it when the the penalty or the free cook or whatever situation starts up again. Because I think in that Scotland game, it was something like six and a half minutes from the foul being given as a penalty to the penalty actually being scored. And there were five minutes of time added on. I mean, just absolutely ludicrous. Um, and again, for it to be happening in the women's primary tournament is I think an absolute disgrace and like I think it was Megan Rapinoe was saying it just goes to show that FIFA don't care enough about the women's game the same day that the game is played two men's finals being played on the same day that would never happen if if that was the men's game the other round for the for the FIFA World Cup so why happen for the women and it is true and I think that show things like this show that wild improvements have been made is still has got a lot of work to do um, and basically I felt like the women's game was sort of like guinea pigs almost mm-hmm. for uh, for these systems which is wrong I also thought on a slightly different note people were trying to get into the area because they felt they were I think people would play differently in the penalty area. I watched the game today after that finished, New York Red Bulls against Atlanta United, 3-3, very entertaining. And a lot of the Atlanta players were trying to just get in the box because they knew that the Red Bulls players wouldn't go anywhere near them because they knew what had happened. And perfect example, Atlanta did get a penalty. It probably was a pen. After a VAR review, someone put their hand on someone else's shoulder, Martinez's shoulder. I just it's just daft to me that the way you play the game changes mm-hmm. if you're in a different part of the pitch. Never mind anything else because you're scared of the consequences. For me, VAR should be used for the clear and obvious errors, like they've stated. For the ref to give a corner today, and then in the World Cup, and give a penalty in the end. All right, a lot of people saying it probably was a pen, and I could go with the argument that it probably was. It's not a clear and obvious error. Omri's handball against Republic of Ireland all those years ago, that is the sort of thing that's a clear and obvious error. These sort of 50-50s are slowing the game up. I know this is going to sound like a stupid thing to say, but I don't think it should be about getting every decision right. Because even, I didn't think it was a pen today. A lot of people I've spoken to said it was. So for me, VAR and the referee have got the decision wrong today, but for you or for someone else, they might have got it right. So getting it right isn't the key thing because it, what is right for different people means different things. It should be used to overrule these colossal cock-ups and errors like people who are five yards offside and when the ball doesn't cross the line or someone handballs it intentionally, those sort of glaring errors. Then I'm all for it. But stuff like that and today, uh, I, I, I just today not so much, but there, there have been games I've watched during this which is... I would say been ruined by VAR. Okay, let's. I want to talk about the actual quality of the football Sorry. as well, um, 
who would be your player of the tournament? Oh God, that is a great question. I think, obviously, I've watched most of the, I think maybe even all of the US games. I thought Lavelle, who scored the winning goal today, has had a great mm-hmm. tournament. Dal Kemper, I thought she's been great at the back. I think Ertz has been great in midfield. Obviously, Morgan Rapino has got lots of goals, so I've been impressed by them. Um, that is a great question. I think Ellen White has had a great tournament mm-hmm. as well for England. Um, and I think if maybe if Steph Houghton had scored that pen... Um, She, she, and they'd kind of taken the US one, you know, mm-hmm. a bit further. Maybe they'd, she'd be up there. That's a good question. I think for me, I'd probably say, I think Rapino really. I think she's just been so consistent when she's played. She's scored goals at key times. I think she scored two or three penalties, you know, completely nervelessly. And has also done a lot of positive things for women's football mm-hmm. during the tournament. So, I think I if think you, her, if your decision is who's had the most impact, she'd be top of the list, yeah. wouldn't she? I think she's had an incredible tournament in what terms. About you? I, I I would go for her for that reason. I would go for for her in the sense of the not just what she's produced on on the field, um, but what she's brought in terms of your ability to be kind of you know ballsy and and up for it and and tough and 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 still be um still be a lady playing football you know and I like that about her play no I agree with you I think um as I say she's just had a big positive impact on women's football Mm -hmm. um all in I have thought that Jakobsen uh, for Sweden who scored the second goal yesterday I thought she's been a really eye-catching player um, although I did see today actually that the Dutch goalkeeper has been released by Arsenal and is currently doesn't have a club oh well I don't think that'll last uh, yeah, very long exactly. <laughs> I also saw when people were talking about all this stuff which I thought was fascinating that the West Ham captain and I've completely forgotten her name um, she was making the point that she's turning up to pre-season soon and she has to go to Sports Direct to go and buy herself a new pair of boots because um, she hasn't got a boot sponsor and the, and the club don't provide them. So she had to go and buy herself a pair of boots, which just goes to show that whilst the top, you know, maybe probably probably not even 5%, but the top 3% even are doing very, very well, the step down after that, mm. the captain of West Ham has to go and buy some football boots off Mike Ashley, the horrible bastard. Um, and that still just goes to show, I mean, they played in the cup final last mm-hmm. year at Wembley and she's got to go and spend 50 quid on a new pair of boots from JJB Sports or whatever. It's, that also says something about West Ham's approach to I, their ladies' team. Yeah, but I, I would imagine that they are not alone in that before, mm. you know, before we dig out West Ham. But yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that it just goes to show that there are still massive strides to be made. So moving on a little bit from the Women's World Cup and something a bit more uh, relevant to us, uh, particularly, Jess Fishlock has torn her ACL and looks like she's going to be out for a while, nine months or so, and that appears to mean that she's going to miss all of the 
qualifying campaign for Euro 2021. For the sake of asking a stupid question, how big a miss do you think she'll be? <laughs> oh, huge, unfortunately. I mean, I think if there was anyone we wouldn't want to be without, she'd be top of the list. I think so. Um, I think the energy she brings, the kind of centralising strength she brings in that in that position, it's, it's just a huge loss, huge loss. Yeah, I agree. And she was, ironically, in a brilliant run of form. Um, she, she was scoring goals and setting up goals and player of the game and everything for Seattle. So a big, big loss, um, especially when you consider some of the teams we're coming up against. Um, I said we've turned away from the Women's World Cup, only <laughs> temporarily, sort of. Get well soon, by the way, Jess, in the very unlikely um, uh, sense that you're, you're listening to this. Um, obviously, Norway were there. And I would say they looked quite good at football. <laughs> they did, rather. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes, there's, uh, there's going to be a tough tough opposition uh, within the qualifying group, obviously. Uh, they were just playing some t- tidy, kind of controlled football sort of you stereotypical scandinavian football i suppose yeah. weren't they efficient efficient as a good word efficient um i think i think they're going to be i think they're going to be tough particularly when we're missing jess um i mean i really agree i think it's going to be very very difficult to produce our best stuff without our best player realistically but you've got to look at the positives and the kind of the reality of the situation as well. I thought Norway looked very good. I thought they looked good going forward. But I do also think they did look a bit suspect at the back. Mm-hmm. And I think there is definitely something there for us with Elise Hughes's pace. Um, and obviously, hopefully, Tasha will be pushed further up the field and, and she'll have a, an opportunity there. I think that might have to be the solution. Because one, we're looking for goals. I mean, obviously that uh, the goal scored in uh, Lechwith was important. It was, you know, a big monkey off their back. But uh, we've still got to work out how we're going to score more goals. Um, I think we're solid at the back. So I think there's an argument um, about pushing Tash forward um, and utilising her more in a almost perhaps a number 10 role now without Jess around. I think she will end up probably playing like an eight mm-hmm. sort of a role in cent- in the centre of the of midfield, like quite literally replacing Jess um, and leave Kayleigh Green, Ward, Hughes, etc. up front as it is and, and have Tash kind of replace her Would is my best guess. Mm-hmm. But do you know what? We're certainly not a one-person team. We have a lot of quality players, and I think if we go on the basis that Norway, if we can nick a point off them ourselves, if they go on and smash the group, if we're one of the best three runners up, we qualify automatically. If we don't, we're definitely going to be in the playoffs. I think there's a big, big window for us here. When you consider, if you kind of remove them from the op- from the from the picture. And look at it as almost a four-group, four-team group, group mm-hmm. of us, Belarus, Northern Ireland, Faroe Islands. 
you got to fancy us. You, you, yeah. You've got to say we've got a chance there. So I, I do think whilst it is a big loss, I also don't think it is a defining loss for us. No, I would agree with that. And I think the way we played against New Zealand shows how we can play without her there. Yeah. Um, and it goes back to your point about Tash's role. She was kind of bossing things in a more central role in that yeah. game, wasn't she? So True. we've had a template of what we might be looking at. Yeah. And I do think that when you look at it, I appreciate they got to the quarterfinals. They did only win two games outright, uh, Norway. They beat Nigeria and South Korea in the groups. Lost to France in the group, although I did think they were a bit unlucky in that game, to be fair. Drew with Australia and then lost to England 3-0. And when you consider we lost to England 4-0 in, the, in our qualifying? Three. Three. You'd say you could argue that there's perhaps not a huge difference in, in what we're capable of there. I think I'm right in saying as well, um, we, in the whole of the World Cup campaign, were the only team that England didn't score a goal against. As in once. We drew nil nil with them in the qualifying yeah. campaign. So that was the only time they didn't score. All right. In the whole okay. of the so World there was Cup. a game. Yeah. Right. Uh, which I quite liked. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I agree. I think we, I, I do think we've got a good chance against, you know, a strong team, although it is a, it is a difficult group. Um, I think we do have a good chance there. And hopefully we can kind of do the business against the other teams, which will be where realistically we kind of earn our money. So a few more things that we are going to mention uh, just before we finish up. The first of which are the Welsh transfers. Tom Lockyer has gone to Charlton. Matt Smith's gone to QPR. Uh, and Chris Gunter has been released. I know. Where do you think he should go? In normal circumstances, just because I would say Newcastle. You know, <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, let alone someone I'm very fond of. Um, I think... To be honest, as long as he stayed in the championship and played every week, I think that'd be great. I would even settle. I think he's better than it, but even League One, if it meant he was playing every week. But I'm I'm confident he is going to get uh, a shot at the championship again. He's he's definitely good enough for that. Yeah, I mean, I think hopefully how he he showed the play he showed um, in the recent internationals will help as well. He hasn't got much on the books recently from Reading, but hopefully that that game uh, will help folks see what he's still got to offer. And I think the fact he's available on a free helps. Yeah. And if I'm one of the promoted teams, Charlton, etc., yeah. I'd be looking at that and saying... He's worth a try, he's worth isn't a he? shot, isn't yeah. he? As, yeah. as a free transfer. Yeah. Um, I think Lockyer at Charlton is an interesting move. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good move for him. They're obviously on the up. They're looking to push forward. Uh and, and again, a free transfer. So hopefully he's got a nice signing on fee out of it. Oh, I'm sure he has. Yeah. Um, Matt Smith at QPR. Mm-hmm. QPR seemed to have done a decent bit of business all, all summer. Um, and if he plays regularly for them, I think, A, he could be a key part of their team. But I can actually see them doing relatively well this year they, with the players they've got and, and, and people they've invested in. So I think it's a great move for them. And I do think it's... I think it's a good move for him yeah, to get some challenge. championship experience um get to play in a slightly more competitive league i think yeah. would be good for his development i agree as well. the, the physical yeah. side of things yeah. would be a big big yeah. benefit for him i think interesting that there's not much talk about any possible move for joe allen i 
feel like that now clubs are starting to come back after the off season. I think that's when things will start to ramp up for clubs and clubs will be starting to kind of look around a bit more pre-season who's come back out of shape who you know where else do we need to improve he's not looks like he's not at it this year whatever I, I I can see that happening the only thing is is if he moved I could actually really only see him perhaps going to a championship club of someone who's just been relegated or a club who just got promoted to the Premier League and it's not because I don't think he's good enough. I just don't think he's the sort of player that people think we love him because we watch him so often. I, I think he's not necessarily the player that people think, ooh, we need to get Joe mm-hmm. Allen. Because he's definitely plenty good enough. Um, and as I've stated over and over again, I would love him to sign for Newcastle. Um, there's a lot of things I'd love in Newcastle. <laughs> actually, a manager would be nice. Um, but... I think now players are coming back. I think now is the time where all the transfer mm-hmm. stuff starts to start to ramp up a bit. So I still think there is a window for him to for him to go upwards. Okay. It was nice to see Owen Von Williams is back in Scotland. Absolutely, yeah, glad to see he's still playing and pushing forward and and dreaming and desiring yeah. and just got all the time in the world for him. Yeah, he was. He even in his interview he actually talked about. You know, what do you want to achieve if I want to get back in the Wales squad and you know that and I and just the way he speaks about it so passionately I, I was I loved as a consequence of that I did actually go back plug to listen to our interview with him mm-hmm. and it was such a great way to spend uh however long it was 18 yeah. minutes or so um so if you haven't listened to that please do he is the nicest man um and very interesting and very funny a great insight on uh, on our summer in 2016 um, incidentally, whilst there on a plug, I have reposted a blog I wrote in 2016 today um, about the summer of 2016, about Wales's uh, summer and the summer of our lives. So if you do want to go and have a look at colemansdream.wordpress.com, please do. Smooth plug. <laughs> um, to move on a little bit from that, just one more thing on the transfer front is bail. Mm-hmm. Inter have been credited with interest, which I really want to happen because their away shirt is delicious. Um, Real, Real, sorry, seem to have said you can basically go on a free if someone can match your wages. Um, and he's also been mentioned as part of a potential swap deal for Paul Pogba. Mm-hmm. Um, Isco has also been a potential make weight in that, which I think would probably be a lot more appealing to Man United fans. But either way... I can't see a way where he ends up playing for Real Madrid next year. No, I I don't think he'll be playing for them. Whether he's sitting for them might be the outcome, unfortunately. Yeah, maybe. Um, but I think the idea of Inter is is quite appealing. Uh, they start they've been getting their act together a bit more recently. Um, we'd have our our own little corner of. Northern Italy, there, uh, wouldn't we? We'll have to do a, a podcast away day. <laughs> you, me, you, me, Bale, Rambo, sat around the table having a having a having a Peroni. That's lovely. Um, yeah, so those are the the big transfer news um, in terms of players. There has also been a transfer in terms of potential coaches, which is Craig Bellamy has gone to Anderlecht, mm-hmm. which. To all intents and purposes, 
seems a really, really great move. I would like the record to show that a while ago I talked about him selling stuff, uh, the business he runs in Panath, because <laughs> my mum pointed out, I don't know if you remember this, uh, and I said it seemed to me like he was preparing to up sticks and move somewhere else. Well, there you are. There's your scoop. There you go, Lizzie Well, there's your gentlemen. man's scoop, yeah, technically. <laughs> man being a nosy bastard. It's really paid off for once. I think it's an interesting um, interesting move for him. It's interesting that Vincent Company has reached out to him. You know, he he probably doesn't isn't sure of folks who would like to go and work with him, I don't yeah. imagine. Uh, so the fact that, that he kind of taught Bellamy into that move... Um, the role is interesting in what is clear, clearly a team that have, have got to work as a developmental um, under-21s into the, into the senior team. So what is his, his official he title? He is the under-coach of the under-21s. I'm not sure what the title is particularly, but his role is coach right. of the under-21s. Um, and as the kind of premier team in Belgium, you're going to have your... It's got a strong academy, and it's and yeah. it's looking to grow an even stronger academy. Um, so I think that's it's, I think it's a really good step forward for him. Yeah. No, I agree. I think it gives him a chance to leave behind all this other stuff. Yeah. Um, you know these allegations of bullying and whatever else, which the conclusion of which never came out, mm-hmm. which says to me that there was probably a lot of nonsense flying around there. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think it's a great move for him. We have had a Twitter question. Uh, on this front is he a future Wales manager is it worth bringing players who are Welsh uh, and who are moving into coaching uh, into the national setup? and that was from Redwall News for me he probably if he keeps progressing has got the capacity to be a, a Wales manager I'll let you say but I have some really strong thoughts on the bringing Welsh players through into the national setup. I think, I agree with you. I think down the line, he's, he's probably going to be our manager at some point. Um, I do think that the FAW and the FAW Trust are doing amazing things at the minute. And actually, I think one of the things they might want to look at going forward, and this simply may, may be just a, a volume of initiatives there's only so much you can juggle at one time yeah Uh, but I think something they might want to look at is what's um what's the kind of coaching trajectory um through to international level uh there's clearly a path for players um and I think with the level of involvement they've got in the coaching licenses and the development work that's happening there and the quality of people that are, are doing FAW qualifications um, I think in their big picture they're definitely looking at as looking at it as a track whether from our perspective it might not be as sort of as an obvious as an ex, as and as explicit as it can be with the players um, but there's clearly a sequence and a development and a um, a role that the FAW is taking there now, whether the setup of the first team allows you to have kind of, I don't know, a guest coach in for six months of observation and that sort of thing. And I'm not sure that works, really. I think you might get more out of spending six months with Ajax or Real or 
Liverpool. Do you know? I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah, I think it might be that you leverage things more that way necessarily than direct sort of internships with the national team. But what do you think? I think there's got to be a way that the FAW leverages the position that they're, the very positive of their position they're in more. I think, for example, I saw Vieira came back recently and did like a coaching session um, and a little speech with, I want to say like the under 16s or something like that, which is great. And we need more of that. And we need to get people who've been through the system like Henri to be a part of it. And we need uh, Balak, Michael Balak was on the latest uh, round of it. And I saw on the women's front, they've put together this brilliant, uh, women's only mm-hmm. course and they were coaching some kids and the kids were part of the coaching course and they were the guinea pigs I feel like for the sessions my old club Sully Sports mm-hmm. were, were one of the clubs um, which was which is brilliant and I think they need to utilize the links that they are creating and I'm not sure necessarily that as you say a six months observatory role in the FA in the senior setup is doing anyone any good because Hey, watching my gigs, coach. Um, sorry, um, and also, you realistically, it's once every, you know, few weeks or prob- possibly even months that you're seeing people, which renders it pointless. But I do think there should be something, a, a pathway offered, for the for these people to get some coaching experience. It doesn't have to be with a top club. It doesn't have to be with um, the seniors it could be with younger age groups and we're offering those people some sort of pathway that if you come through our coaching scheme we can offer a scholarship for want of a better word where we will where the FAW will pay you to be part of the of the Welsh coaching setup rather than just an observing a, a role people like Jack Collison was someone whose name was mentioned to me who's doing badges and everything else in his coaching he went has been working with West Ham but has recently left that role um Get him involved. If we think he's a good coach, let's yes, let's utilize those links, um, and do something about it. I think it's really important for me. The big thing I think is it's long been a criticism of certain Welsh clubs. Obviously not Swansea at the minute, but like when was the last time that Cardiff City produced young Welsh players that went on to serve the national team? Well, let's figure that out. Let's build a link with these Welsh clubs and let's get these new up-and-coming coaches, be it Jack Collison's Vieira or someone we don't, the na- don't know the name of is a good coach, let's build a link with Cardiff City and say, right, it's not all on you. We're going to pay for this guy to come and work with you for six months and he'll help coaching and, you know, build a proper uh, system, I guess. Maybe system's a bit harsh, but some sort of process and protocol where we are giving people who've come through our system the opportunity to improve Welsh football as well as themselves um, and I appreciate you know with the money and everything else that's involved that's not an easy task and as you say there's only so many balls you can have in the air at once but I think that's something we could certainly be looking towards because um, it strikes me as a missed opportunity if we let these people come and learn everything through the Welsh FA and then we don't maximise that opportunity further down the line. I mean, I think the F- if I play devil's advocate for a minute, I think the FAW might argue that, like the big name coaches that you mentioned, for example, their involvement and their the kudos that comes from having those people training provides the FAW with a level of income that enables them to train, you know, 
the assistant at Sally Coates, for example. Yeah. Um, so I don't, th- I don't think it's that the FAW and the FAW trusts are missing something here. I think it's more that let's get the coaching let's get the coaching qualification sound and then look at the wider picture yeah. of the opportunities. And I, I think you, you might be right. And I think there's, there's certainly an argument that it's not, as you say, you can't do too much at once. And maybe those talks are underway perhaps. Um, and like I say, it doesn't just have to be the big names, but I, I think, and I'm certainly don't mean to be critical of the FAW and the FAW trust because they've done a lot, but I do think, as things develop, we can kind of maximise our opportunities a little bit better and a little bit differently um, to kind of make the most of of the of the opportunity we're creating for ourselves, really, through the excellent mm-hmm. stuff and coaching courses that we offer. Um, yeah. To finish, we have... I wanted to talk about oh, sorry. Banger a little bit. Oh, I've missed them, yes. I want it because, well, not that there's much to say beyond it's a mess at the minute. Their proposed, the proposed 42-point deduction that would have seen them relegated at the minute is a, become a 21-point yeah, been halved. Uh, point reduction, although there's still some toing and froing with um, FA tribunals and, and um, investigative panels and things to look at that yeah there was another charge on the f- that came, <coughs> came through on the 5th of july um about another ineligible player yeah more recently than the previous thing so that may change if the that numbers. happens that would see them relegated. yeah change the numbers yet again um you know the fact that vaughan jr has been appointed he's appointed himself as manager yeah basically i mean it's kind of Suggest maybe that he couldn't find anybody else yeah. as well. It's also called Vaughan Jr., which I have a huge <laughs> problem with. But. And then, you know, Bangor, um, the supporters club have set up... I mean, they described it themselves as we're setting up a football team as an insurance policy. Yeah. I mean, it's, that it's terrible that that's how you have to approach it. Um, but 1876 has been set up. It's going to be joining the Gwynedd League, um, playing at, uh, I think, at the university ground. Um, so just really just wishing the fans good luck with that and the developments. They seem to be dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's and getting some support from the FAW, which is pleasing yeah, to see. Yeah, I agree. Um, I just didn't want to not chat about it because it's just one big mess. But No, it really is. And I, and I think there's obviously a lot of stuff that's going on behind closed doors that we're not aware of, which muddies the waters even more. But the fact that the chairman can appoint himself as manager, I mean, it's like... It's like a bad TV show. Like it's, it's farcical, really. So, I do hope that they uh, can find a way out of this mess. Be it with a newly appointed club, or be it through whatever happens next with with the club itself. Sorry, my wife has just started making dinner in the background. <laughs> I don't know how much noise is being picked up, but if you hear something being fried, it's uh, it's our tea. So apologies for that. Um, the last few things, just to mention a few questions on Twitter, which we've had. I've got one probably longer answer and two quicker questions. First of all, Ruth, what does Ethan Ampadu need to have a do? What need to do to have a good season this year? And that is from Dan Roberts. Play. Yes. <laughs> I would settle for playing. Next. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, he 
probably needs to go out on loan, even with the situation at um, at Chelsea with their signing embargo and things. I'm still not sure he'll make make their first team. Depends what Lampard does. Uh, it's an interesting. The whole situation is interesting. Yeah. Uh, but I think he probably needs to go out on loan. I agree. I'd love to see him <coughs> go and play in the Championship for a year. Yeah. Um, he's probably capable of playing, playing in the Premier League somewhere, but at the, at the least I'd like to go and see him play in the, in the Championship. But I agree with you. I think he needs to go somewhere um, if he's going to build his career. I, I, don't th- I don't see him playing this year. Maybe the, the odd cup game or whatever, but realistically not much. Um the second one was, do you believe that it's important for Wales to have a Welsh manager? If a more skilled English or any other nationality manager was available, would you like to see Wales pursue him? And that is from Tony Moore. My preference would be for a Welsh manager, but the bigger preference is for us to be successful in making tournament qualification. So it wouldn't matter... For me, if it was a Japanese lady that was coaching them, if that was the got us the right outcome, um, my preference would would be to have a Welsh manager because I think it says something about a holistic approach to football and a, a developmental approach. It goes back to the slightly earlier conversation about what the FAW and the trust are doing in terms of progressing uh, the development of coaches and managers. And I think for us to be successful in that, you hope that what we create is a chain of kind of almost a succession pattern, policy, template um, that pulls people through. But I don't, I'm not wedded to the idea that we have to have someone Welsh managing the team. Um, And there's been plenty of instances of very successful international teams who have been managed by someone that's not of their nationality and in some respects I can see that a little bit of separation um, might not be a bad thing on occasion the separation point is something that I think is really important you don't have to look at it through Welsh glasses if you know what I mean Um, I think the, the, the biggest thing about this question is it ties back to when Ryan Giggs for example got appointed if we wanted a Welsh manager, we were either gambling on gigs, gambling on Bellamy, or getting Tony Pulis in, really. So as a consequence, our succession plan of getting people to be Welsh managers and Welsh coaches needs to be better, because every time we need a new manager, we can't all of a sudden go, oh shit, we need someone here, and hope that there's someone there, there needs to be a plan. Even when, I know it obviously turned out nicely, but when Coleman even got the job after speed... I can't imagine, I don't think he was top of many people's kind of popularity lists because realistically he was the only Welshman who was available for the job. And I think we always need to have the best person who's available. And if that means that person's Welsh, I would obviously prefer that. But as you say, I'm not wedded to that idea. I just think it just goes to show that there is definitely room to be done in terms of, uh, work to be done, sorry, in terms of improving and building on the number of Welsh managers uh, and people who are coaching (coughs) who can help progress Welsh football. 
The last question, mm-hmm. which we'll finish on, is a bit more longer answer. We said we have nothing to talk about today, and we're one, in, one hour, 25 minutes in. Um, was from Danny James, how do we promote the Welsh Premier League and drive up attendances? Hmm. Um, I'll go, because Ruth is about to cough again. Um, I think, I've mentioned this before, that there should be some sort of setup between the FAW Welsh professional clubs and the Welsh Premier League where even if it's not a draft system per se but some sort of system where a newly promoted team can go to Cardiff City and Cardiff City or Newport or Wrexham or whoever can say you can choose between this lad, this lad, this lad, this lad and you can have because you're a newly promoted team you can have two of us two two lone players and then the middle ranked teams get one lone player each and the top three say get none Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason I suggest that is because I remember when Harris Vukic uh, played for Newcastle he went on loan to Cardiff City for a bit I became much more actively interested in keeping an eye on him and Cardiff and and how they were getting on because he was a Newcastle player Um, and, and I do think there's an element of that which would help people who are Cardiff fans want to go and watch Barry Town for example because they've got one of their players they want to go and have a look at how he's doing Um, and I think that would help I think and I'm sure it happens in certain areas but initiatives to give kids free tickets Mm -hmm. go to schools to give free tickets and then when the kids get a free ticket the parent has to pay and all of a sudden that can kind of help Um, it's very very difficult because I know you know I'd love to go and see you know, when I was a kid, I never got to play at Jenna Park because you only played cup finals at Jenna Park. And I'm not very good at football, so I never got to a cup final. Um, but it would be great if clubs like Jenna Park allowed teams other than their own kind of junior teams to go and use the pitch and, and play on that big pitch and enjoy the facilities that are there. I think that would be a bonus. And I, again, I don't know how likely that is and realistic a, a request that is that you can have more kids come into play there. The hardest thing is, I think, is not professional. Mm-hmm. And it's, you're asking a lot of people to judge, juggle, giving away tickets and doing community events and stuff like that when a lot of the time, a lot of the people who rely on to run those things are volunteers. So I know it's not easy. Um, and again, I think perhaps the FAW can can get involved in that sort of thing and facilitate a lot of those things with their community support office, uh, engagement officers or whatever they're called um, the TV deal with S4C I think is a big big help and I don't know obviously we're not at home so I don't know but I don't think there's an English language option I think if you want to watch it it has to be in Welsh which I can see people who are Welsh speak, who are not Welsh speakers being put off uh, by watching some of it on TV because they don't really understand what's going on, especially at halftime with the punditry and stuff like that. Um, so that could be something uh, that could be done. If that does happen, I know with some stuff that S4C do, S4C do sorry, there is a, an English language option on the red button, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's for all of their games. Right. And I appreciate the importance of pr- promoting the Welsh language. I'm just giving out a few mm-hmm. a few ideas. This, the stuff, and I don't know how it solves the problem, but... You know, one of the reasons Bangor was struggling is because they couldn't pay an £80,000 bill. In a grand scheme of things, £80,000 is not a huge debt. It's not a huge financial hole to fill. And I'm not suggesting the FAW give them the money or lend them the money. 
because they're not there to be a bank. But I think for clubs, they they could be doing more to help clubs raise more money, um, and you know, sending gigs or bail or whoever else to different events at different clubs to help raise the profile of those clubs in those local areas. I think would be a mm-hmm. a big big help. And again, I appreciate a lot of this is pie in the sky thinking because people are not professionals are doing it out of goodwill to keep their local club going but I do think that the Welsh Premier League has grown a lot recently and the C International was a big big help I think these teams playing in Europe is a big big help so whilst there is room to grow I do also think that I do think people should be commended for doing a very good job in what I'm sure at times is kind of trying circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I actually think that the tree that things are on is pretty promising at the minute. Um, as you say, I think the the contract with S4C is important. Having those Friday evening games is important. Um, I do wonder whether they could look at the organisation of the fixture lists a little bit more so that... Um, perhaps at the point where teams are have some travel and the fans have some travel, that some of those games are a, a little... Like the, the timing and the organising of them is better and you don't have people travelling from Llandidno to Barry on, you know, early January or yeah. something. You know, I wonder if there's things they can do there that might make some of the, the drawing of crowds a little easier and perhaps some a bit more travelling yeah. crowds. Um, but actually, I think the the what they've done over the last 10 years or, or so is really impressive. Um, and the fact that some of our, you know, what happened with um, in the Iron Brew Cup with the Druids this season and, and hopefully TNS and them can, um, can do well this coming week in their European games. Uh, the fact that we've got the C International now, the fact that you've got, um, you know, using Roscoe as an example, hopefully a start of a pattern of players moving forward from playing in the WPL uh, with a few obvious exceptions the financial stability of most of the clubs seems to be in a reasonable place yeah um, so I think I think overall that they've made really really good strides I think you know we might be being a little um, facetious in in kind of expecting more than where they are right now because if, yeah. dev- if you look back 10 years of what was going on and where we are where the league is now, it's it's clearly so much more embedded, so much better organised. I think I think the FAW is taking a bit more active interest. That might be the part I think where there's perhaps still a role yeah. for the for for them to play. Um, you know, next time we have a, a a training camp in, I know the timing might not work, but next time there's a training camp. Um, up at Colliers Park in Wrexham, go and watch one of the take the lads yeah. and watch one of the North Wales teams yeah. playing or something. Equally, you could do that out of out of Newport as well. But I I would like to see us leverage things around the international windows so that the dub, the fact that the WPL is going on at the same time is perhaps there's some joint marketing or some joint press conferences or something. I think that might be something we could look at. No, I think that's a great, great idea. The joint press conferences, especially, I think is great. Um, well, as it is almost time for tea, and we were worried we weren't going to be able to speak about much, and we're now an hour and a half in, I think we should probably stop there. 
sounds like a good idea. Okay, well, thank you for listening. If you've put up with us and stuck with us all this time, we uh, appreciate it. Um, this might be the last podcast we do together for a long, long time as Ruth is moving. Um, so I have no idea what our next podcast is going to be or what it's going to evolve or how logistically <laughs> we're going to do it. But uh, I'd imagine this is probably going to be our last podcast this summer. Um, We've got an interview with Tash lined up, haven't that's we? That's true. We do have an interview with Tash lined up. That's probably going to be after the uh, the women's games at the end of August. So keep an eye out for that. Keep an ear out for that. Um, but for now, I think, goodbye. <laughs> Bye for now. <laughs>